giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Samir Talwar. Hey, Samir. Hi, Al. So I was wondering if you could start us off with a description of your day job. Okay. My day job is in flux quite a lot. So I've spent the last few months at a client site working at a startup, uh, which has been really fun. Hmm. So I'm, I should probably explain. I'm a consultant. We I work for a company called Coderance, and we do what we call software craftsmanship consulting. So specifically focused around building software that lasts a long time without exploding. <laughs> without exploding and, cost of technical debt and whatnot. Yes. Or without actually physically exploding, although we haven't had to deal with anything that will. But mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to the day when we do. So we, um, we've been working on a client. They're very aspirational, <laughs> which is brilliant and it's exactly up my street. But I haven't been programming, or I rather, I just started programming again last week after about a month of not doing it because it turns out the problems weren't in programming about half the time. It was in organizational management and trying to make sure that everyone knows what they're building mm-hmm. and trying to make sure that things don't change every week right? Uh, and go in totally different directions. Because while we can adjust for that, it does slow things down, right? So, right. Uh, it's it's interesting that you're ostensibly consulting on quality of software, and that's often turns out to be a social or management problem. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's kind of new to it. Like software is a fairly new industry, and at a startup, most people don't know what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, which probably means they'll do a better job than people who think they know what they're doing. But it's still a little bit crazy. So we try and help them. And I'm no expert in organizational stuff, but I know a little bit. And when I saw problems, I tried to help them. And now. We have someone in who's actually good at that, so I get to code again. Oh, nice. What, uh, what language? I'm writing Java right now. I'm looking at bringing Scarlet in for a few things. I get the feeling that we'll be moving entirely to Scarlet over the next few months. Mm-hmm. So you're, I, I see you're interested in functional programming then. Yeah, that's right. I actually spent a couple hours before this trying to learn more F-sharp oh, nice. with a couple of friends of mine. Mm-hmm. I'm playing around with Haskell a bit myself. Mm-hmm. What do you think of it? Uh, I like it a lot. It's it's kind of the opposite of like Ruby, which is typically what I'm writing, um, right? In the sense that like Ruby is just insanely permissive and kind of lets you do everything, and Haskell will let you do almost nothing, in a, in a good way. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. See, I know yeah. what you mean. Uh, I spend a lot of time writing Ruby and Python as well, and yeah, I actually enjoy going back to Haskell after that because I'm thinking, well, if it compiles, it'll probably work. Whereas with Ruby, where it just might explode in 20 minutes for no good reason. Right. Totally. Yeah, I, I enjoy the sort of challenge of getting the Haskell working and thinking about problems in a different way. I really appreciate mm-hmm. that. So is um is this startup client a typical client for Codurance? It's not for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I'm enjoying myself so much. So first of all, we've generally worked a lot more in like enterprise stuff um, just because of where our roots are. So it's nice to work with people who are a lot more flexible and a lot more I'm not sure what the word is. They move a lot faster. You need to make a change, you make the change, and then you apologize later. Whereas, <laughs> you know, in other clients, it might be three to six weeks of filling out forms before you can get anywhere. Yikes. And the other reason is they really want to scale straight out the door. And while we've worked with stuff that needs to scale, we generally have much longer to figure all that out before we actually have to do something. And we can go out the door, see, if it works, see that it works with, you know, five users and then start scaling up. That's not going to work with this one. No. I feel like some startups get concerned about scale really early and they don't actually need to. That's not, oh, the, not the case. They're going for a big bang release. And while you can, we can debate the merits of whether that's a good idea, but the fact is they're doing it and we want to help them. So sure. we're going to help them do that. Fair enough. So do you enjoy the sort of Java enterprise stuff then? Nope. 
Okay. Well, that's a lie. I, I like some of it. I like the challenges that you face in some enterprises, you know, like millions of transactions a second, that kind of thing. Or even just trying to write something that can live in production for three years without changes mm-hmm. and just kind of keep your fingers crossed that it works. The last project I worked on before this was actually really interesting because it was kind of more platform. Like we, we did... We built a platform and we built a few things on top of it, but the idea was that other departments could come along and make changes to it and add bits to it as they saw fit, and it was supposed to be extensible enough to make that happen. And I didn't quite get to see the end of that, but it was really starting to look like we were getting somewhere with that, which was really enjoyable. Hmm. So when you say multi-platform, like someone else comes along and plugs into your API or something or gives you code to run, or what does that look like? Um, kind of. It was um, two things. So... A large large scale database and some MapReduce functionality on top of it, and we're building. So we brought in a third party thing to do that, and then built a lot of custom functionality on top of that to do very very specific uh, operations that were aligned with the business. And so and people needed to be able to wire those as they saw fit, and also plug in new ones as they saw fit. So we're trying to facilitate that. A lot of it was the form of XML comes in, XML goes out, and a lot of transformation happens in the middle. Hmm. Um, I feel like that's, that's like pretty much all programming. That's pretty much programming, isn't it? Like some data comes in in one format and it has to go out in a different format. Yeah, that's one of the indicators that like says function. Where I guess points me towards why functional programming seems like such a good idea or makes so much sense to me because it's like at the end of the day, I feel like I'm just taking a data and munging it and then spitting it back out. Yep, sounds about right. And it's like okay, that's that's a function. And if you want to chain a bunch of functions together, that's cool too. But you still have data in one end and at the other end comes wildly different data. I'm seeing a lot of people, even Ruby developers, move towards Clojure for exactly that reason. Yep. We've got this data, and it's kind of fuzzy. And it, even though we have a schema, the schema's not always right, so type systems don't help us here. But mm-hmm. we've got this data, and we need to ch- process it and chuck it out in a different format. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. Compose, and compose a lot of those things. Yeah. I've done uh, uh, some Clojure myself and, and really enjoyed that as well. I think it's got a very similar mindset to... In some ways, it, um, it fits well with the Ruby mindset of I'm going to make a small thing and I'm going to see that it works and I'm going to do another small thing and see that it works and I'm going to stick the two together. Like, mm-hmm. Kind of how I see a lot of Ruby developers work. Yeah. Which is a very functional way of thinking. Yeah. And one of the, the cool things, I think one of my favorite things about Clojure is that you can start off with this like very dynamic world where you, know, you can take data of unknown shape and then slowly add these constraints over time. Like starting with really simple, just like, you, okay, you can, you, now you have a precondition and like, so your data has to pass this validation of some kind, or you can go all the way up to like uh, de- defining schemas for your data or adding the uh, gradual typing. Like there's, there's a core dot type type system. So it's like, it's, it's pretty cool how you can just kind of pick where you want to be on the flexibility versus type safety scale and just say here, this is where I want to be today right now. I think it's missing that final step for me, which Haskell gives you, which is to finally go, all right, now I know what this data is. I can go write the types for it. And Clojure still wants you to live in a world of maps and vectors, which is incredibly flexible, but doesn't give you... I think it's great when you've got one or two developers on a project, but as soon as you scale up to a bunch of people who might have to work with this thing, it's really nice to have the type system just tell you what is possible. Why do people always say that? Like, I feel like I've heard that a million times, which is... No, dynamic languages are great, but as soon as you get too, too many developers, then you need type safety. What is it about a big team? That I, I don't makes... think you need it. I think it. I think it's just another form of documentation, just like tests, mm-hmm. right? So you can make up for it with a ton of test cases. That seems like more work to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can make up for it with a load of documentation on your wiki, but keeping that up to date is even more difficult than keeping your tests up to date because it doesn't tell you when it's broken. But shouldn't a small team also g- gain these same benefits? 
I think they would, honestly. I just think it shows a lot more in, in larger teams, or actually not so much larger teams, teams where um, the person working on it is not the same day-to-day. Hmm. And that's more true in larger organizations because programmers are treated as more fungible in larger, larger organizations. Huh, interesting. I, I've, I've not got any research on that, but that's what <laughs> sure. it feels to me. Yeah, I just, I, I, I've, that sounds very familiar. I've heard that a bunch of times. And I'm just mm-hmm. trying to figure out why that might be true or maybe why it's not. No, maybe it's not. I know that I've had pretty good experiences going from shell like shell scripts to which have everything's a string to Python or Ruby, where you know you got the rich type system or the tag system, I guess, like, and then rewriting that in something like Scala. And one of the wonderful things about Scala is you can basically read it as a Ruby developer. It looks mm-hmm. very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still got your map and filter and everything, and sure, you can call them collect and select, but basically it's the same thing. Right. Hmm. That's interesting. I think we should be okay with writing something and then going, right, it's kind of outgrown itself. Let's rewrite it in something else that's more suitable. Yeah, I mean, that's, I agree. That sounds like a great thing, but I feel like that's one of those, uh, I feel like it doesn't happen that often. I think everyone as a developer has a story of like a thing that they wrote as a prototype and don't worry, we're not actually going to use this that's been in production for six years. Yep. So it's like, there's, there's a, I think there's a few of these techniques where like, oh, write one and throw it away and like, or, you know, or write one and then, you know, write another one that has more safety into it. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. does that ever actually happen? Sometimes. There's a, there's a great saying that's almost kind of the compliment to it, which is if you don't have time to do it twice, when are you going to have the time to do it, do it over? And it's kind of a mantra for doing it right the first time because, like well, that. you're never going to have time to do it twice. And that means you'll never have time to rewrite this. That's nice. I like that. Do you play Go by any chance? Um, I played a little bit, but I've not really tried that hard. I should probably get into that. It's, yeah, a, lot it's, of fun. it's a great game. I'm a, I'm, I really enjoy it. Um, and there's a there's a fun saying in Go, which is beware of going back to fix up. Right. It's like this. Like, like be careful about making moves that you're like, oh well, I know this is kind of a bad play or a weak play or you know is creating mm-hmm. some, some danger here, but I'll just come back and fix it later. I like that as an analogy for programming because it kind of implies that there's some kind of antagonist. <laughs> there's someone who's right, out there exactly. to make you fail and while that's not exactly true like there's enough entropy in software development that kind of nature is kind of taking that role for you it oh, yeah. really wants to screw you up right exactly or just like the 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 act of it is so hard that you know you're you're already going to be making lots of mistakes that you don't know about mm-hmm. so if you're also making yeah. mistakes that you do know about you're you're in double in trouble yeah absolutely you, you had a cool post on your blog about um mob programming oh right which one was that? I think I wrote a couple. It's called Mob Programming and the Importance of Fun at Work. Okay, so Woody's all going to kill me because I don't really do mob programming as he defines it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't had a chance to do it at the kind of scale. So a bit of history is probably useful. Um, Woody's all kind of coined the term. I don't think he was the first to do it, but it was the first to kind of recognize it as a deliberate practice mm. um, of kind of the whole team in the same room, one computer, one screen, one keyboard, one mouse, all the brains, mm-hmm. all day, every day. And I think the amazing thing that he and his team have done and a few others, like there's Gianfranco Alonchi in Sweden or Ericsson, as they do it consistently. Wow. So there's other companies that will do it you know, on Fridays or when mm-hmm. they have a particularly tr- tough problem to solve or for learning. But they just do it all day, every day, in and out without, you know, I don't want to call it breaks. I don't, I don't want to say without breaks because for them, you know, it's just the way they work. It's just like pair programming for some other people yeah. or programming with your headphones on for some other people, right? It's just the way they work. Um, and I haven't really had a chance to do that for an extended period of time, but I've done it for a couple of days and I kind of know how it feels to me. So 
I really enjoy it. I feel like it's a great way to learn people up to speed really, really quickly and make sure everyone's on the same page. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work if there's anyone who doesn't want to do it. <laughs> sure. Um, but then that's a problem you can fix, right? As long as you're willing to fix it. So we had a bunch of people for a few hours in front of a projector and it was really just supposed to be me and one other guy. We we're going to do a casa together. So, and then we, but it was at a conference. Um, I helped organize a conference called Socrates UK, which is full open space for three days in the middle of nowhere in Britain. We stole the idea from some folks in Germany and it's also been re this year. It's gonna, it was in the Canary Islands. It, we did it in England. Um, there's going to be a German one in August, a French one. I think there was a Swiss one last month and there's going to be one in Belgium. So that's gone from one to six a year in like two years, which mm -hmm. is awesome. Mm -hmm. So we tried it. We just kind of hooked up to projector and we started coding and then a bunch of other people showed up and then people started throwing in ideas. What about this? What about that? And what was really interesting to me was that we were going really slowly. But when we made a decision, everyone had made that decision collectively. There was consensus. It wasn't just consent. It was consensus. Hmm. And we knew we would never, ever have to revisit that decision, at least not for a very long time, because hmm. everyone agreed. There, was no, there will be no wasted time going, you know, when, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, when two weeks later you see a, some code go in that's just a refactoring of some code you wrote two weeks ago, hmm. and you thought, okay, that, I, the new code is good. The old code was also good. That was probably unnecessary. Um, sometimes it is necessary. Sometimes there's something that builds on top of it, but sometimes it's just some developer having fun. Mm. I think that's okay. Like sometimes some people just need to enjoy themselves and some people enjoy themselves through refactoring. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's even better when everyone just agrees, this is how we're doing it. We have done it and we're good. It's mm. interesting. So there's people switch the drivers, right? Every, every 10 minutes or so you yeah, were switching who's, so who's at the I keyboard. I think we were rotating every 10 minutes. Um, the other rule I think it, that Woody employs among a few others is if you're acting like you want to jump up and type, then just jump up and type. Hmm. Keep the driver out of their seat. They can, they can navigate for a while. That's okay too. Yep. Hmm. But then after 10 minutes, you get kicked off again. So that's fine. No one's dominating. Yeah. Hmm. It sounds interesting. I, working that way full time sounds like a total shift. Like I, I could see it being really interesting and possibly really good, but it's the idea of it sounds uh, a little terrifying. crazy. Yeah, but not terrifying, but just uh, uh, very I different. I guess. Me. Yeah. I don't think I could do it. Well, I'd like to think I could do it, but I'd have to try it and find yeah. out. So I guess I mean, the the thing I'd have to. Like we said earlier, so we touched on this. Like that, so many problems in program or like in any effort really are social. And mm -hmm. so this is like a, a drastic social change. And so yeah. I feel like that would have the biggest impact. And also going down to like you, you, you're now output, the output of your like programming function is a single keyboard, right? So everything's being channeled through that. So you probably lose some efficiency for, for team size in terms of like pure output. But I wonder if it's made up for by like quality and team consensus and the social benefits. Yeah. And, and not redoing work that's already been done. Mm. Uh, we were introduced to this concept by um, Jim Franco Alonji when he came to our conference. And one of the things he said was that they're one of the fastest teams in Ericsson. Hmm. Um, and it's actually because they just don't redo any rework. They don't have to. And, the, and the, I imagine the ideas that come out are really good. Like I find that the more people I have review a pull request, the better the code gets. Oh, yeah, exactly. So if you have like six people in a room, then the end product is going to be really solid. Someone will remember, oh, wait, we already have a method that does this. Or, and someone will say, I'm not happy with how readable this is. And it's just the, the quality keeps getting pushed higher and higher. Mm -hmm. It's like the cross product of, uh, or the multiplicative product of everyone in there caring about different parts of quality. I feel like pull requests are almost too late. Like when, like I've been working for a long time in this kind of 
branch and pull request model where mm-hmm. even when pairing so a pair will work on a branch for a while they'll raise a pull request that might be two hours later or it might be two days later i try and err towards two hours but it doesn't always happen mm-hmm. and then some other pair will review it and i really like that but i feel like most of the review stuff is all about style and method naming and things like that. Mm. And I guess what I really want is criticism from my entire approach. Like maybe there was a much better way to do this, but you couldn't really propose something because you should have been in the pair. Yeah. And that's where mobbing comes in. Yeah, it's it's true. It's it's hard to suggest giant changes when you get a pull request. Like, you know, <laughs> what, have you thought about like doing this? T- and, and so I, I've actually been happy in like the last six months or so. I've closed a handful of pull requests after opening them. Like someone was like, you know, we're we're trying to achieve X Y Z, and this technically does it, but we paying these costs over here, or you know, we don't. Apparently, we're, we're trying to achieve X Y Z, but this actually doesn't do X Y Z. Yeah. Um, and like, so I actually think it's a sign of health when a handful, when oh, a certain that's number. That's great. Of, that means that someone's actually done a proper review. Right? Yeah, totally. Rather than just kind of skim the code and made sure that the code fits the style guide, which, I mean, it's useful, but yeah, it's not as useful as. That style thing to me is totally an anti-pattern. So we we actually wrote a tool to an, a, a, actually it's a paid application to automatically do style guides uh, reviews mm-hmm. on applications. It's called Hound, um, and so it'll actually comment on pull requests if it, the style there does not match what we've said is our style. That's cool. Um, which is awesome because then no one spends any time doing that. Basically, that's brilliant. But then there's still like variable names and method names and things like that where you yep. know people will happily comment to oblivion on exactly what this variable should be called, but maybe mm-hmm. the variable doesn't need to exist. Yep. Definitely, it's it's easy to get even with the styles all taken care of. It's it's easy to to, to stay pointed at the things that are like a little bit too low level. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I'd like to start introducing it at my current client. I think they'd be totally up for it. Um, in a few months, I don't think, I don't see them doing it yet, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I've had some. So I haven't done pair, mob programming like this, but I, we have had some good. Um, we do developer discussions on Fridays. Uh, and sometimes people will just bring code and ever, we'll all sort of talk about it as a group. And even that, even when we're not producing new code, has been like really enlightening and good for like sharing knowledge and information and all that. Yeah, absolutely. I really like that. Do you, um, how public is the code that you're working on? Like, do you have, you, you need, do you raise pull requests and like announce it to everybody or how does it work? Um, the team I work on is basically two people now. And so generally I'm getting a review by that other person. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if it's something bigger or complicated or confusing, we'll sometimes bring in other people as well. Um, like we have a Slack channel that I think that's just for like, Hey, I need some more sets of eyes on this thing. Um, so not private, but not a lot of people looking at it generally. Right. Makes sense. And um, why don't you pair? Uh, we do pair sometimes. Uh, okay. it's not like a super common practice for us, but, uh, we do it sometimes. Sure. I don't really want to get into like religious discussion, but I was just curious. Yeah, uh, I find myself pairing about half the time, and I feel that's right for me. Mm-hmm. I think for everyone else, it's, it's different. Totally. For me, the biggest question is just like energy level or social desire. Like, how how much mm-hmm. do you want to sit next to right next to someone and talk the whole time? And so, my, my desire and ability to do that shifts over time. Makes sense. I'd actually like to do it a little bit more than we are right now. I'd say it's not. I'd say it's under ten percent for sure. Um, okay, and I could I could go with more than that. Mm-hmm. Like I enjoy the the quality of the code that comes out of it when I pair with someone. I see. I guess it's kind of a, a coding anti pattern, uh, which is people saying I want to pair on this because this looks difficult or this looks challenging hmm. or I feel like I need another set of eyes. I feel like you need to do the opposite. Hmm. Specifically, this is so trivial or so boring that we don't need to pair on it. But hmm. I've thought about it and I decided that this is trivial. Or maybe it's mechanical or whatever it is, but it, it won't benefit. Or honestly, maybe it just requires some creative juice and 
you can't really be creative in a pair. It's, it, people are shooting down your ideas constantly. Maybe you just need to explore. Hmm, that's interesting. And so you, you, but then often what we'll do is we'll go spike something on our own, and then we'll show the pair, and then we'll delete it and do it from scratch. Hmm. And test drive the whole thing. Because there probably was no test for that spike either. Right. And you actually delete the spike, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you might stash it, but that's okay. Sure. You can just drop the stash later. Yeah, totally. Hmm. Are you saying that you think the mundane stuff is a, is a good candidate for pairing then? It's not so much mundane as this requires a lot of creative input. I, but we don't know which direction we're going to go. It could be one of ten, and we have no idea. So maybe we'll just explore two or three of them solo and then come back and decide which direction we want to hand. Hmm. But the actual implementation, that's engineering. And there's still creativity involved, but often when you're pairing, you propose an idea and then it's shot down immediately and you don't have a chance to you don't have a chance to kind of take it to its logical conclusion. Hmm. I see. So like the so the solo pairing gives you room to like play. Yeah. So my boss calls it loose pairing, where um you might go do a spike on your own and then come back and just show the results of that. The important thing I think there is that when it comes to actually do the implementation, you do have two sets of eyes on the problem. But I like that. Again, it works differently depending on the team and depending on the pro- the code base and the problem. So yeah, I don't I don't mean to be judgmental at all. It's oh, more no, sure. just like that's my style. I think to me the the best approach is to have a toolbox of approaches. To have like yeah. I know about these four or five different distinct ways of of making software, and I roll I choose them you know in a situationally dependent way. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Today's show was sponsored by our friends over at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean provides simple and fast cloud hosting built for developers for as little as $5 per month. Now, I personally am terrible at setting up servers, like real bad. Fortunately, DigitalOcean has me and us and all of you covered. For instance, they have automatic backups and snapshots, which allow you to easily clone and deploy servers. And that's important because I cannot remember to take backups. Neither can you. Memory is hard. You should back it up automatically. Another thing they have, full-featured DNS management. I'm not even sure what DNS stands for, but I know I want it. I want it managed, and I want it to be managed in a fully-featured way. And that's what you get. It is easy to get started. You can deploy an SSD cloud server in as little as 55 seconds, which is pretty much as long as I want to be dealing with deployment. Uh, And they have an active community. They have a huge set of tutorials and forum post things for getting through those random problems that always seem to come up when you're trying to spin up boxes. Uh, If you need help with Docker or whatnot, Drupal, LAMP, GitLab, all kinds of different technologies, they have one-click installs to take some of that pain out. If you're like, yo, I need a WordPress installation and I need it like now, you click a button, 55 seconds later, $5 later, bam, you have yourself a blog. And you should have a blog, and you should host it on DigitalOcean. So if you head on over to DigitalOcean.com, you can learn more when you sign up. Make sure you use code GIANTROBOTS with a capital G and a capital R. Tell them Ben sent you, and you will get a $10 credit towards your account. So thank you to DigitalOcean for supporting this show. So let's talk about uh, the Socrates conference a little bit. Okay. So you were involved as an organizer, right? Yes. Um, well, it was my boss that kind of, well, I, would, I don't want to say started it, stole it from the folks in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it was um, Nicole Rau and Andreas Leidig who started it in Germany. And that's actually where the German software craftsmanship stuff started happening. Mm-hmm. And the colleague who just walked in, um, we actually, like, she, we just, she started last week and she came over from Germany. She, we, we know her through the German software craftsmanship stuff and through Socrates in Germany. So it's really become a community. Um, so we stole it 
because it was awesome. <laughs> nice. uh, the idea is it's like three days, three nights and three days in the woods or in the countryside in the middle of nowhere mm. uh, with a bunch of developers who all kind of at least have the same principles at heart, if not the same implementations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just go from there and see how it goes. So no, uh, no structure beyond that? There, there is. There's two days of open space. Um, you familiar with the open space format? Nope. Okay, so what you do is you have a schedule, which is uh, for us it's just 9 to 5. Um, every hour is a time slot. You can use those time slots or you can completely ignore them and start something at 10.53. We don't care. Mm-hmm. It's just a guideline. And we have rooms. Um, so we have a bunch of rooms in a conference center. And they do the same thing in Germany and the same thing in uh, the Canary Islands. But some of those rooms might be the bar or outside because if it's sunny, mm-hmm. which it always has been. I don't know how we manage that. This country is not known for always being sunny, but mm-hmm. we've managed it every year. Huh. And then you, one by one, people just come up with a post-it and they say, I want to talk about uh, microservices in room D at 10 o'clock. And I think it'll take around about an hour. So we'll go 10 to 11. And someone else will say, I want to run a workshop on design patterns. And it'll take two hours and we're going to do it in the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just you just go from there. Cool. And we've never ever had a problem with people not throwing stuff up, because there's always someone out there, and they'll throw something up, and then everyone else will just follow. That sounds cool. I like the uh, it, the mystery of showing up and not knowing what's going to happen. What I love about it, I I only realized this um, on the last day of the re- most recent one, which was a month ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was chatting to a friend of mine who was also attending, and. Um, I'm always amazed by the the caliber of the people we get there. Mm. And what he was saying was, it's kind of obvious because if you don't have any idea what's going to happen, only people generally have a limited conference budget, right? Either they're paying for themselves or their company's paying and they say they will sponsor you three days a year and that's it. So they have to decide. Like It's a, it's a choice, right? It's, there's an opportunity cost to coming to Socrates. You don't get to go to some other conference. So people who really want to know about Swift, they'll go to Swift Summit. And people who really want to know about Java will go to DevOps and whatever. Mm. But people who really want to just go somewhere with an open mind and have their mind blown, they'll hmm. come to Socrates. And so it's self-selecting, right? People yeah. have chosen to come to a place where they have no idea what's going to happen. And you just get all of, you get those people. You don't get people who want to go learn a specific thing right and i think people also really do get the message even before they show up that it's not just about learning you have to give as much as you and people come prepared Hmm. that's awesome so you have open space you said was part of it and there's other there's another thing that happens as well well it's three days so the other part is completely free form there's a bar we have breakfast lunch and dinner together Mm -hmm. there is um we had a games room this year because they redone the conference center and they had a couple extra rooms uh we people play werewolf until 6 a.m i don't know if you played werewolf or mafia it's basically the same game but it's it's basically a game of deception and bluffing and people love people love playing it after several drinks (laughs) i can't stand it but you know some people love it yeah it drives me crazy too personally so I think people just do whatever they want and it turns out whatever they want after several hours of being inspired but not actually doing a lot is to do a lot so they end up coding in the bar till 4am or whatever it might be Mm. and that works pretty well Um, some people don't some people go for a long walk because we're in the countryside so why not Mm -hmm. or some people wait go to sleep early and then wake up at 6am and go for a run and they meet five other people who want to go for a run and they talk about coding on the way huh that's cool i'm looking at the photos it looks like a beautiful location Oh, yeah, we're really happy with the location. Um, I have no idea how we managed to swing it. but hmm. And the conference is free. 
the conference is free, but the accommodation is not, so it still costs. Sure, but you're... but it, it's a community run event, mm-hmm. so we no one's making money out of it. it. Actually, this year it was run by our company, but only because we um, most of the organizers of the London Software Craftsmanship Community also work with Coherence, partially because LSCC is about five years old, Coherence is about a year and a half old, and was started by two people who ran the LSCC. Mm. Makes sense. And so then they hired all their friends. Gotcha. So are you doing any uh, teaching now, formal teaching? Um, I, we as a company do, but I'm, I've not been doing anything for a while. We did run a really formal workshop in, at Socrates UK where we went from zero to microservices with continuous deployment and service discovery and no downtime and all that in a few hours, which hmm. was basically impossible. We didn't actually get all the way, but we tried. Um, so we had to kind of switch to demo from workshop at the end, but that's good to know. We'll do it over six hours next time. <laughs> yeah. So I'm working on that kind of thing, and that's really fun. I think we're taking a slightly different approach from a number of people who are doing the same thing in that we, we really try and make it focused on no downtime, everything works, all the tests are passing, you have monitoring and production, um, which is, I think, how other people come at it. To, um, you end up with the same result as the way a lot of people do, but we kind of come at it from that direction, so it's a lot different. really want to focus on not just your software is up and running, but it actually does the thing it's supposed to be doing. We're verifying that every step of the way. Mm-hmm. How do you mm-hmm. know Denise, by the way, from CodeBar? Oh, I help out at CodeBar sometimes. Okay. Um, I, I've been helping at CodeBar since basically since it started because the founder is a friend of mine. I think I got invited to the first one and couldn't make it. So I got into the second one and was instantly kicked myself that I hadn't made the first one. Hmm. It was so much fun. Uh, I, I see Denise went through, all it, went through all of it. But from my point of view, it's an amazing thing to teach newbies because you learn so much that you've totally forgotten mm-hmm. like i tell everyone the same story because it still blows my mind hmm. i think it was about six months ago i was mentoring someone at coba and she looked at me after i explained something and said okay what's a variable and it took me like 15 minutes to come up with an answer like i had nothing i don't know if you can i bet you can't come up with an answer on the spot for what is a variable uh, what's a variable? It's a place in memory with something pointing to it that can right, change what's over memory? time. Yeah, and what's pointing? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so Explain it to someone who's totally level. new. Yeah, it's different. Exactly. Diff- and so the best I could come up with was by analogy and say, well, we have a box and we put the thing in the box. You know, like, yeah. pointers by analogy, um, which I'm still not satisfied with. I just, but I can't think of anything better. So huh. I, I'm really looking for that explanation. I'd love to. I'd love for someone to actually explain variables without analogy. Maybe that's impossible. I have no idea. But, but I mean, if but, you yeah, if you don't if you don't know the concepts involved, like what memory is and pointers, then you <laughs> have to use analogies, right? Probably. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. So stuff that that happens every week. Mm-hmm. Every time I go to Code Bar, something like that happens, and that's why I recommend that everyone I know joins. And that's tra- that's usually how I convince them. It's like you were going to learn so much that you didn't know you didn't know. Totally, totally. You thought you you thought you knew Ruby. You won't. You don't know Ruby. You won't. You don't know Ruby until you've taught it to someone who doesn't know Ruby. Yep, it's so humbling to go through that. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel good too. Like I I, th- I think more people that are new should try to teach other people that are slightly newer. Like I think yeah, people should be absolutely. more willing to teach earlier because it helps. It like makes you real aware of the things that you do know like wow actually i know a lot about this stuff now that's kind of crazy yeah so we um coherence we take on apprentices mm-hmm. and the idea being that well we have a specific thing we want to do and we're never going to be able to hire people who can do this the way we, the way we do it either there's not enough of them or you know they're, they're doing their own thing but what we can do is teach people how to do it so we hire people who probably know java or no c sharp 
Um, those are the two main languages we're focusing on right now, just because that's the way the London market works. Yep. And then we teach them fundamentals of test-driven development, of um, like continuous like integration, of continuous deployment now as well. And we kind of work that way, um, teach them principles of object-oriented design. And we're trying to get them to go to Codebar, among other things. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get them to run workshops in LSCC. We've got one coming up fairly soon. Uh, one of our apprentices is speaking at a conference fairly soon. And I can't wait because that, I think, is a, such an amazing learning experience. Mm-hmm. And that will drive them way further in their career than anything we can teach them like directly. Yeah. Like, really excited for that um, conference talk because she's brilliant and I'm, I, it's going to be amazing that's awesome i feel like giving talks in public is one of those things that too few people take advantage of like it, it is such a <laughs> super boost on your knowledge and career at the same time yeah we run a monthly event where we have two talks a month and specifically the entry criteria is we prefer if you've never given a talk before and we still can't find people <laughs> that's interesting uh and, th- and they're half hour talks they're not even a full hour yeah have you tried lightning talks oh uh, we do that? those too yeah we get a bit more uptake on those yeah. but not much yeah. uh, people, people are just either afraid or don't feel like they have the material or i don't know what it is but mm-hmm. um i really would love to get better and this is something i know there's people in london who have been tirelessly working to try and get newbies to speak mm-hmm. but we I, I, something i'd love to get better at as a industry is like making sure that people feel like they have something to contribute even if they're fairly new to the industry right yep and constantly bringing in new voices yeah absolutely at the front of the room not just at the back yeah definitely maybe we can do this through things like fishbowl discussions um you know when you have like a bunch of people on a panel and then there's an empty seat and anyone can jump in the empty seat uh but i don't know i've had bad luck with those one was is when there's a queue of people lining up to take the empty seat so the rule is, like, if you take the empty seat, someone else has to immediately, and they do. But there's a queue of people, so it's it's really it's really tricky to manage because everyone wants to speak. Yeah. Or the opposite happens, and there's one person speaking for an hour and a half, <laughs> which is no fun either. Right? That's not that's not why you were there. Sure. Totally. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I hope I had some good material. Yeah. Totally. It was uh, it was great talking to you. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Totally. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes of this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 154. Thanks for listening.